I love the Monday episodes of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, because we have a load of good news to talk about from over the weekend. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski and Jane Cahoon. Laura Johnston is taking the week off. Let's get to it. Just how big of a flip-flop has Ohio Governor Mike DeWine done in his approach to combating the coronavirus? This was a jaw-dropper because Mike DeWine, Jane Cahoon, had spoken very strongly in terms of what we're about to discuss. And now we're going in the complete opposite direction. And there's a danger. We talked about this a little last week, but Laura Hancock went out and quantified it. So what do we know? Well, as you said, this really caught our attention during the governor's briefing last week when when he was he was talking about coronavirus hotspots that they've been dealing with in Southwest Ohio, in the Dayton and the Cincinnati areas. And he said he was taking a region by region, county by county approach and working with local officials to see what else might need to be done to attack these hotspots. So we were like, hmm, that doesn't really, you know, that that's different. <laughs> so we went back and, and to the recordings of what he said previously, uh, namely that imposing coronavirus restrictions on a county by county basis would would be a disaster. That's why we remembered it, because yeah. he spoke so vehemently against it back when Republican lawmakers were asking for it. Um, I mean, go into a little bit of the detail about why he said it would be a disaster. Well, I, I can read you his exact quote from from May 1st. He said, we are one state. He said, I know some folks have suggested, well, if we take this county, well, this county, the numbers here in this county aren't as bad. Or in this rural county, once you start down that pathway, there's no stopping, there's no end to it. And then all you end up doing is the county that opens back up more, there's a rush of people from the other counties. So you take an urban county, and then it's got a rural county very close, and people are going to roll into that rural county if it's opened up. He said it would be a disaster for this state. Well, and it followed a little bit of the logic that, that Republicans in the state have used on gun laws. The reason they don't want to allow local jurisdictions to have gun laws is because as people travel around, they would have to keep track of what every jurisdiction's gun law is if they have a gun in their car or something. It's kind of the same thing. If I'm traveling around the state, I'd have to keep track of what the, the rules are. But now he's saying that's the way to address it. And as we mentioned last week, if this is just about closing bars or or requiring masks, that's one thing. It's fine. But if you start to lock people down, this could have an effect on the election because the urban counties are going to require more controls than the rural counties. The whole argument back in May by the rural legislators is we don't have the coronavirus. It's not a problem here. We shouldn't have to follow the same rules. Right. And well, you mentioned, you know, what lockdowns versus mask requirements Laura Hancock talked to Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, who said she had talked to the governor, you know, about the hotspots in in her area. But she said the focus was not on lockdowns, just the mask requirements. But, you know, who knows where it could lead? Yeah, we're going to have to keep a real level of vigilance on Columbus to make sure that they don't use the coronavirus to reduce voting in areas that they they think are too democratic. Anyway, I, it's a surprise from the governor. I think he has more explaining to do about his reversal. And maybe when he has his next briefing, he'll uh, come out and address it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Does the video from the Justice Center surveillance cameras show that police instigated the violence on May 30th? And is there any evidence at all that supports the claim that protesters breached the Justice Center with aims of freeing prisoners in the jail? Chris Ranowski, reporter Corey Schaefer, did yeoman's duty in watching all these hours of the video. But what he found was pretty jaw-dropping, which requires some good follow-up. What did he see? So... The video seems to show two things. One, that the worst of the property damage happened after the police started shooting pepper balls, pepper spray, and launched canisters of chemicals into the crowd that had gathered outside of the Justice Center after the May 30th George Floyd protest down there. And two, it kind of seems to corroborate the accounts of several witnesses and legal observers who previously told us that the officer's deployment of this less than lethal munitions sparked much of the sort of angry response from the people who were gathered outside of the Justice Center. And of course, all of this still remains under investigation, but the county on Friday released hundreds of hours of video late Friday, and has still not provided some video from several cameras outside the Justice Center. And they haven't provided any footage of this supposed attempt by the protesters to climb through the broken window of the Justice Center, uh, which was a claim that uh, Cleveland Police Chief Calvin Williams made to our editorial board after the protest happened. So, so there's still some blind spots here. There, there's some things that they haven't provided to us. For example, like we, I mean, we made a very, very detailed and not overly broad, but a very comprehensive request for video uh, from as many angles and body cams and, and, and as much as we could get. And, and things that they didn't provide us. I mean, there, there are angles of the young man from Sandusky getting shot in the face uh, with what we think is a beanbag. There was no footage of that included in that. So there's still stuff that the county and Cleveland police have not provided to us that, that might actually, you know, sort of plug some holes in the accounts of what happened there. But from what we have right now, it looks very much like there, the, there was a escalation by the police that, that caused you know, a ramping up of the anger among the people who were gathered out there. So there are two things that really are worth talking about here. One, Cleveland police, because we hosted the RNC in 2016, had the benefit of massive amounts of training and assistance from the federal government and all the uh, outlying police departments on the whole idea of de-escalation and dealing with these kinds of things. Tampa Mm -hmm. police had set the tone for the previous Republican convention and avoiding violence and, and, and working with people, not instigating it. So what's, what's striking then is that four years later, they seem to have forgotten it all. Because if this video really does show that this was a largely peaceful crowd until the police got violent, then they caused this or they, they clearly sparked this. I get it. There were troublemakers in town looking to get something to go. But they didn't do it until police started shooting people with beanbags and tear gas. What happened? Did all the people that were trained four years ago retire? I, I think, you know, we, we, and we've talked about this and we've reported this previously. Like they were they were not prepared. And, you know, I mean, I mean, down to the fact that, 
you know, you had some, you know, you had the sheriff saying like, you know, we didn't think that, you know, the justice department would be a target during this. And it's like, come on, this is, this is a demonstration about police violence. You, and, and it's going, going to be a couple of blocks away from the police department and the jail. So, you know, you didn't have the foresight to think like, oh, maybe people are going to come down here and, you know, and demonstrate. And so, you know, there was a lot of scrambling. There was a lot of, you know, so maybe part of the response, and we've talked about this and we've reported on this many times, that, that you know, their overreaction or apparent overreaction might have been a result of their lack of preparation. Okay. And then the, the other thing to talk about, nobody had said a word about the Justice Center being breached. So when Calvin Williams, in that virtual conversation he had with the editorial board, let slip that that they had breached it, we came back at the end of the, the talk and said, wait, wait, so they actually got inside. He goes, yeah, they wanted to set fires. They wanted to release the inmates. They got inside. The sheriff's de- deputies were overwhelmed. So Cleveland police had to get over there to get them pushed back out. Now, when I, I let you know about this, because you weren't in the Edward meeting, you were shocked because you had spent some time down there that day. You said, I had not heard that anywhere now we see video evidence that seems to say maybe it didn't happen. Why say that happened if it didn't happen? Well, I mean, keep in mind, there, there is a distinct possibility that there's something that we haven't seen. Again, there's, there's a lot we haven't received from them for whatever reason. And, you know, there might be something that bears out that story that we haven't seen. So I'm not going to wholesale discount what he said. I, all I know is as of right now, as, as we're having this discussion, they've provided no evidence that that has happened. And well, and I think based on what Corey has watched, it puts the pressure on them to back up that claim because that, that's a serious claim. If, if protesters burst into the Justice Center, that, that's a whole different level of aggression than standing on the lawn and chanting and doing some spray paint. The police have said that happened. So based on what we've seen and based on our inability to find anybody to corroborate that, I think it's on the cops to prove it. So provide us the footage that that shows people getting inside because no one else seems to have seen it. Yeah, I'm curious and I would like to see it. And I I think a lot of people in the public who are following this story and the people who were down there, I think people I I think people want to see it. And I think the public deserves some answers from you know, our taxpayer-funded police department. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did the weekend temper the surge we've been seeing in Ohio coronavirus cases, or were the numbers still way up? I think we'll be talking about this every day for a while, Jane Cahoon. The numbers are high. Uh, We were a little bit worried that we might break the record. We did not do that, although we did hit a kind of a new benchmark. So what's, what's up? Well, they they weren't as high as Friday when we had nearly a thousand, which would be, you know, which was the highest that we've we've had since the April prison testing. But over the weekend, we had 817 on Saturday and 854 on Sunday. So those are still high numbers and both higher than this rolling seven day average, which kind of evens evens out the trends a little bit. Which but, keeps going up because we're so high. Which keeps going yeah. up. You know, I mean, the the seven-day average on June 12th hit its lowest level in nearly two months when it was 
381 a day. So that just shows you how much this has jumped up. It's now, I think, hovering around 700 uh, for the for the last seven days. So we should say is, the one day record, I think, was 1380. If I, yeah, 1380 was was the all time high. So we're kind of bracing for for that this week. I well, and I was talking to Rich Exner Friday evening. My my experience with these numbers has was that we drop on the weekend maybe it's because some private labs aren't working or something but the saturday sunday numbers are usually fairly flatter down and when we start to see the the full brunt of them again it's usually monday or tuesday uh we did though hit the the threshold of fifty thousand cases right in ohio right right yep we we hit that milestone that's an ugly number. People are largely blaming the uh, opening up of the bars and the rush to the bars of people in their 20s and 30s. There's been some scorn for people that are going to the bars and not wearing masks. But, you know, isn't that pretty much the result of reopening the bars? If if all these people who are 20 and 30 had been staying home and wearing masks in public uh, are, are, and behaving, and then the governor says, I'm opening the bars, it's kind of a signal that, oh, good, I can go back to yep. the bars which they have, and it's spreading like crazy. And maybe some of these young people feel they're invincible because they're not affected as much, but now we're seeing they are. This is Chris Wernowski. I Just out of curiosity, and, and it, it's important to point out, right, that the increase in numbers is not, I think they've said this, and maybe I'm wrong about this, and maybe you can clear this up, but the, the increase in numbers is not due to the increased testing capacity. Right? No, they the governor did say that they are going up. What we haven't seen, and there is a delay, we haven't seen the increase in hospitalizations or in uh, death, but there has been a delay in the sur- in a surge in cases and getting to that. So in a week or so, we we could see that. Any, anyway, it's something we'll keep tracking. And like I said, I expect we'll be talking about this every day this week. It's this week in the CLE. Why is Samaria Rice upset about how some artists are using images of and the death of her son at police hands to build art projects? Chris Ranowski, Steve Litt had a uh, interview with Samaria Rice uh, about her feelings about this and what some artists are doing or adding to her angst. What did she right. tell us? So last week, Timmy Rice would have turned 18 years old. And, and so we started to see uh, another round of, of people reaching out to his mother and, and speaking to her um, about this. And Steve spoke to her really about something about her son becoming part of popular culture and, and art culture. And, and I don't want to put words in her mouth in this situation because I understand that this is, this is touchy for a number of reasons, but what she told him was quote, I'm not normal because of what America has done to my family. I'm just dealing with it. I can't even have my son in peace. That's what it feels like. And well, what, what, what I thought was interesting, the way Steve phrased it in the story, is she wakes up every day wondering how another artist will have used the, the images of her son or her son's case again in a way that she finds inappropriate. And this was all came about because... MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art, was going to have an exhibit that included such a piece of art, and they ended up canceling it. Steve's been covering that and uh, checked in with Samaria. 
So I, it's, it seems yeah, she like took a, she took an se- exception to that. Uh, it's Sean, Sean Leonardo, who was going to include an image that was based on the surveillance video that showed Tamir's death that I think, you know, most of us are familiar with by now. And, you know, I think it's, it's hard, it's hard for us, I think, to really understand what a mother is going through in this situation, because, you know, on top of, of grieving the death of her son, she's lost sort of ownership of, of what it, because, because his death represents something much bigger in a, in, in a bigger issue in this country when it comes to policing, when it comes to civil rights. And, and to have a child die is traumatic enough, but to have it take on a life of its own and, and really you have to cede control of, of where you see him and where he pops up. You know, I mean, you, it's just, it's hard for most people to sort of fathom that, you know, I mean, you know, people who lose children usually don't have to sort of be reminded of what that death is and what it represents on an almost daily basis. And, and, and it's, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, it just, it keeps that wound open. And I think, right. you know, I mean, when we talked to her back in November for the series of stuff that we did on the five-year anniversary of his death, you know, she talked about that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why isn't the Ohio Turnpike following the lead of Pennsylvania and abandoning tickets and turnpike clerks for automation that is safer in the coronavirus era? Jane Cahoon, I traveled the Pennsylvania Turnpike a week ago. It was wonderful. There was no no lines. Everybody was moving along. And then you get to Ohio and there's lines unless you have Easy Pass. And sometimes even there, there, Ohio Turnpike's not going to change its ways and follow the path of Pennsylvania. Why not? They are not. Uh, apparently, motorists on the Ohio Turnpike just don't use the Easy Pass payment system at a high enough rate to, to justify it. They, they're, they're worried that this would negatively affect their, their revenue. But Pennsylvania doesn't rely on Easy Pass. There are a bunch of people that drive through. They take a picture of their license plate and send them a bill. It's something that they've been doing in Canada and for a long time, I think probably at least 10 years. So I'm not sure why Ohio wouldn't do that. Take a picture of the license plate, send them a bill. Well, they say that, you know, more than 35 percent of of the motorists on the Ohio Turnpike in 2019 used cash or a credit card to to pay. And that accounts for like 90 million in revenue, whereas the Pennsylvania Turnpike said about 20 percent, you know, uh, before they instituted this, used the the cash or credit. So it is a higher percentage, uh, you know. I'm not I'm not trying to argue it one way or the other, but that's that's what they're telling us. And they also said they are concerned about preserving the jobs of the people who collect the tolls. Yeah, but <laughs> the purpose <laughs> of government isn't to, to provide jobs. It's to provide service. And if you can provide a more efficient and safer service, why wouldn't you? And I, I, this one. Kind of boggled the mind. It, the, traveling on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, even though it's got mountains and tunnels that make it twisty-turvy, it's just an easier thing to do. And I'm a little bit surprised Ohio is not thinking in terms of automation. I mean, John Kasich wanted the state to be a leader in self-driving cars, and we don't even have automated turnpike booths. <laughs> so, just something else we're behind on. To add it to the list, right? Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE 
What's the latest piece of information to arise that argues for Cleveland City Councilman Matt Zone to resign from his chairmanship of Council's Public Safety Committee? You know, we first started talking about Matt Zone when we discovered that his son is a police officer and Matt is the chairperson of the committee that should have been holding hearings to get to the bottom of the May 30th riot. Now we know something else that even strongly, more strongly argues for his conflict of interest. Chris Warnowski, what is it? So apparently the City Council Public Safety Committee held a hearing earlier this month about the police preparation and response uh, to the downtown demonstration on May 30th. And Matt did not disclose that his son was one of the officers who was deployed at the scene. So his son was one of the responders to the the quote unquote riot and and he is also his father is overseeing you know a critical hearing to to get to the bottom of you know what happened and you know how things got out of hand and things like that so think about what this conflict is matt zone's son is a responder to a controversial episode in which some people believed the police misbehaved and instigated the violence and at least there's a discussion about it. There's a whole lot we don't know about how this went down. And we've been calling on city council to do its job and get to the bottom of it. <laughs> Matt Zone heads the committee that's supposed to do that. And now his son was there. So if the police did misbehave, there's a chance that Matt Zone's son or colleagues that he's close to did something that, that could be questioned. How on earth can neither he nor Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly see that this has a potential for conflict? Well, if you remember, there was when we did the original story, he did say that, you know, he went to the, you know, ethics committee and 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 said that, you know, or the I'm sorry, the Ohio Ethics Commission and said that, you know, he received, you know, guidance from them that you know, his son was okay to join the force and he didn't need to resign that. But, you know, we've also talked to... Although I thought, a good I government thought that wasn't formal, Chris. I thought that that was, he talked to him, but they didn't issue any kind of formal opinion. And now with this piece of information, uh, it's even stronger. Look, the other thing is in that hearing that you described, mm -hmm. the police chief basically came in and said, I'm not prepared to answer your questions and nobody lit into him saying, what are you talking about? The whole reason we're having this hearing is for you to answer questions. It's weeks after the uh, riot. Why aren't you prepared? Get your information. This is this is the government checks and bounces. They went soft. And, you know, that raises the question. Why did Matt's own chairperson of this committee allow it to go soft? Is it possible that it's because his son was there? Right. Well, and we know as members of the press in the city that, you know, Cleveland police and the city being unprepared to provide information to the public is nothing new. So, so, but yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, we also did speak to some good government advocates who said that his position is a clear conflict of interest. So, you know, this is, you know, this is something that I think will bear out over time and, and we'll see, you know, I, I, my guess is he'll, he'll dig in and say that, you know, this, the, the conflict is not real and that it, you know, that it won't have any impact on his decision-making and his son is his own person and all that. Well, um, you could argue it already has because they went yeah. soft. You know, both of these guys, Kevin Kelly and Matt Zone have, have had some interest in running for mayor. This is the kind of thing that, that an opponent would use against them, that, that there was a conflict, that they didn't 
didn't do the right thing. They went soft on this really serious incident that still demands answers. Um, this could have long political ramifications. And I know that the Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer, we're not going to forget it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What would hundreds of people like to replace Little Italy's Christopher Columbus statue with? Chris Ranowski, I'm just going to turn it over to you. <laughs> I think this is amazing. And and I got to be honest, I, I you know, it, it, so, so around the country, they are tearing down statues of Christopher Columbus. And, and I think they actually did set, they took taken down some down in Columbus and um, they, there's a petition going around now to replace the one in little Italy with one of Cleveland's most famous Italian immigrants, Hector Boyardi, who you might know as chef Boyardi. And, and I have to be honest, I, I, I did not know anything about this until the RNC when they put up all these signs around downtown Cleveland and it had facts about the city. And I did not know that he had his, his first restaurant was here in Cleveland. And, and so I started digging into this a little bit and, and Kaylee Remington did a story about the petition last week, but I found some more history of him uh, that uh, apparently he began cooking in Italy at 10 years old, came to New York in 1914, where he worked at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. And then three years later, he came to Cleveland and became the chef at the Hotel Winton. And his spaghetti dinners became so famous that he opened up a his own restaurant called Giordano d'Italia. And by 1929, the dine-in and carry-out operation was so big that they basically had to require like factory production. So, you know, he, and, and I was talking to a friend about this cause I made kind of a crack about it on Twitter and, and somebody said like, look, like he is actually responsible for, for popularizing Italian food in the United States. And his production got so big that he moved the company to Milton, Pennsylvania and it flourished during the depression because they were creating inexpensive canned foods. And during world war II, the company became really profitable because they were producing field rations almost nonstop. So like 20, I mean, they had like a huge operation going on. And after the war, he was actually awarded a gold star of excellence by the War Department okay. for his contribution. So, okay. All right. so, so here, here you have somebody who's a very accomplished Italian. And, right. So, so but. So that's cool. I mean, that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. because you think of Chef Bardi, you think of not the best Italian food, Mm -hmm. but, and so there is a great backstory there, but doesn't this risk, you know, your immediate reaction on Twitter was to take a shot. Chef Bardi, give me a break. Mm -hmm. Doesn't this risk putting Cleveland into a place as a bit of a joke because they're honoring Chef Boyardee, which is not known for the highest quality Italian food, and there's a whole bunch of restaurants in Little Italy that are. Well, I mean, think about it. We're a city that kind of takes. I mean, we had a we had a parade for a zero in sixteen football se- season, and you know, I mean, this is a city that does take some humor out of its you know its national reputation. You know, I mean. What did the mayor call the city a couple of weeks ago? I mean, come on, come on. (laughs) (laughs) He said that's the way people think of it. I don't think he was calling it. Right. But, but, but think about everything I just said, you know, how, you know, a statue is supposed to sort of represent an opportunity for education, you know, wherein statues of, of these, you know, these Confederate statues that are being torn down were, were, were 
a, a lot of them are put up as as a means of intimidation and to remind people of ugly history and and you know as as thinking adults, when we learn about Christopher Columbus's legacy not being the sort of third grade textbook version of of a great man coming to this already discovered place, you know, when you learn, you know, that he was slaughtering people and enslaving people and, and you realize that the legacy is not as great as it should be, you know, maybe we take an opportunity to say, hey, here's an Italian-American who who represents a really amazing immigrant story to to come here at a young age and to succeed you know i think it's an opportunity i mean as corny as it sounds and is is how we you know i mean my old joke used to be that the chippy or d is just wet dog food for depressed adults okay. and, <laughs> but but it's it, but it's no you but, make, I mean, look, think about you make it. I mean, look you make you, you know you just made a very strong argument for why this isn't just a joke, that this is a serious effort. So I, I salute you. Can You're I listening. Say something here? Oh, I'm sorry. Ahead, this is Jane Cahoon. Uh, I just wonder, you know, Little Italy is a, really, they value their traditions there very, very much. And I just wonder whether there's going to be a counter, uh, counter push here to keep Christopher Columbus. I just, um, well, but. But, you know, there was a counter push for years to keep the Confederate flag. Eventually, uh, even Tennessee has, has come through with the idea that's a bad thing to have. I think the Christopher Columbus days are numbered no matter how you do it. They might argue for another great Italian-American. And Chris has made the case for Chef Boyardee. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. Well, I thought that was going to be a short podcast and we've ended up going over time. So we'll have to end it here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening. This week in the CLE, we'll be back Tuesday. <laughs>